Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember, as always, to go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China to see the post about this episode and the past episodes. And I know the past episode was just a few days ago, but it also has the links for my social media, my email, and the donate button. I'm recording this episode right after the last one, so no one has donated in the last 45 seconds. But last time, it was all kicking off. Three and a half people gunning for the emperor. I mean, there were a lot more, but right now in the story, three and a half really were in a position to go and get it. So let's just jump right into it. So without further ado, the History of China, episode 48, Enter the Eastern Han, part two. General Zhang An was the odd one out here, and he was in a tough spot. He kind of rebelled against the emperor, and then he took part of the city, and then things weren't really going well, and now he's just kind of sitting there holding the capital. And it wasn't like he had deposed the Gungshur emperor, he had just seized physically the city. And the Gungshur emperor still had supporters, and he still had generals who had soldiers still loyal to him, and they were eventually, well, quickly were able to evict General Zhang An from the city entirely, but they didn't kill him or capture him. But all in all, it allowed the Gungshu Emperor back into the capital. Right before the Red Eyebrow showed up. Yeah, it's all kicking off. So there is Zhang An and his small force recently evicted from the capital, standing outside of the city. And here come the red eyebrows. General Zhang An looked at this and simply said, yeah, I, I'm going to surrender. And hey, you know what? I'll work with you to take back the city. So the red eyebrows bumping into surrendering General Zhang An joined forces turned around, and crashed right into the city. And the Gungshur Emperor might have had supporters and some generals that could evict one rogue general himself, but the Red Eyebrows plus this one general who had already taken it kind of once took the city back pretty quickly. It's underwhelming, but it was simply too much. The Gungshur Emperor, if it wasn't clear last episode, was on his last legs. And with this... The Gungshur Emperor then fled again. This time, he would never return as Emperor. Because while fleeing, he was made prisoner by one of his other generals that said himself, Yeah, I'm in trouble here too, but I could ransom this guy off and some of his followers and leverage them to give myself some safety. So the Red Eyebrows and Liu Penzi and General Zhang An are now sitting in the capital. Liu Penzi's puppet claim, or whatever it is, sounds pretty legitimate now. So Liu Xiu now knew he had to act, and act fast. The plan was still working. I mean, everything went exactly as planned. The Red Eyebrows took out the Gungshu Emperor, but if the Red Eyebrows got everyone to back their emperor, their puppet Liu Penzi, it would be Liu Xiu on the outside looking in. I told you this plan involved quick timing. He declared himself emperor as the Red Eyebrows were going to the city, so he had some 
air of legitimacy to himself, let them take the city, and then immediately went about working. So, in a sly bit of propaganda, Liu Xiao decreed that the Gongshu Emperor, under his authority, that being Liu Xiao's, was now Prince of Huayang, and that if you harmed the Gongshu Emperor, or I guess the Prince of Huayang, you would die. If you brought him back to Liu Xiao in good health and kept him alive and, yeah, well, in good health, you would be rewarded. He's quickly trying to incorporate anything that's left of the Gungshir Emperor's power and loyalty and influence. It's a propaganda play. I mean, it's sort of like Caesar. Caesar was fighting Pompey, but also at the same time wasn't happy that the Egyptians killed him. He wanted to be the one to promote clemency. Makes him look more grand, makes him look better. And who knows, maybe he liked him, but we don't think he did based on all the other things we know. And this propaganda play worked, kind of. Liu Xiao, after doing that little bit of propaganda, then turned around and easily took the old capital, or the recently abandoned capital of Luoyang, and established that as his capital, which he was now claiming was the capital of his regime. I know, it's a lot. To clarify, the Gongshu Emperor is a prisoner of his own general on the run, the Red Eyebrows and their puppet Emperor Liu Penzi claim that they are the rightful rulers and they are in Chang'an, and you have Liu Xiao claiming he's the rightful emperor in Luoyang. By the latter months of 25, the walls were closed. I mean, they were completely closed. The Gongshu Emperor realized it was officially over, and he requested to surrender. He sent an official to Chang'an to negotiate his surrender to Liu Penzi and the Red Eyebrows. Yeesh. You can see how Liu Xiao has to act quickly. Because that effectively meant, as Agatha Christie once said, and then there were two. The Gongshu Emperor would surrender the really sought-after imperial seal that he had in turn taken from Wang Mang in exchange for a peaceful surrender. Oh, and he wanted to be kept alive and made prince of Changsha. So, yeah. The plan for Liu Xiao is still kind of working, but that seal is legitimacy in an object. Liu Penzi, or, well, really, his generals that controlled him, smiled and said, sure, knowing full well that they planned to kill the Gongshu Emperor after the seal was delivered. I mean, they're never going to let this guy live. That's a terrible idea. And they would have followed through with executing him, except for the fact that the official sent to start the negotiations was a real one to the now-deposed Gongshu Emperor. And he said, if you execute him, I will go to the execution site and kill myself. Which was very inauspicious, and that was a real sign of dedication. And with that, the Gongshu Emperor was indeed brought to the city, kept alive, turned over the seal, and was made Prince of Changsha. Whereabout he ruled his principality, yeah, I mean, under house arrest at the Red Eyebrows General's headquarters with that, you know, official that saved his life. I mean, they're not really going to let him leave. But now he's alive, but at the end of the day, there are now really two capitals, two emperors. 
You have the warlord Gong Sun, but he's not claiming to be emperor of all of China. But there could only be one capital with one emperor at the end of the day. And quickly, or at least to us now, it became clear that only one of these capitals had its stuff together. To put it lightly, the Red Eyebrows and their puppet Emperor Liu Penzi, who was 15, were not exactly political geniuses. They may have been fantastic at gathering those in the countryside to fight and raid and to survive, but run an economy? Stabilize coin? Run a city? Run territories? Create supply chains? Yeah, no. And, and the crux with all of this lays in their whole thing, their shtick which was, yes, banditry. At the end of the day, their quote-unquote soldiers were bandits. What do bandits do? They steal. They're not out there creating economies of supply chains, no. And immediately after taking control of Chang'an, the Red Eyebrows and their generalship proved completely unable to corral their quote-unquote soldiers. The people who lived in the capital and the surrounding regions, well, getting raided by their so-called saviors and leaders on the daily, well, they all immediately realized that they might not have been that great, but the times were definitely still better under the Gungshur Emperor. And they all began to murmur, we want him back. Oh, and they knew he was still alive and in the city. So this presented the red eyebrows with two options. Option one, dispose of Liu Penzi, their puppet emperor, and make the Gungshur emperor their new puppet. Interesting. Option two, very, very, very quietly dispose of the Gungshur emperor. Promises be damned. Issues with option one. Zhang An started a coup against the Gungshur emperor, if you remember from about five minutes ago. If he comes back, that being the Gungshur Emperor, even if he is a puppet, he will inevitably seek to take him out. I mean, you started a coup against the guy. You were supposed to be his confidant. So, I mean, it wasn't just General Zhang An, but many in the Red Eyebrows camp now were fearing for their own life and thus had issues with this option one. And no, they didn't call it that. But the issues with option two were also quite interesting. If anyone finds out you killed someone you promised to keep alive, someone who the people now clearly love, you are in grave danger of full-scale riots and abandonment of your legitimacy. Oh, and not to mention, the Gungshur Emperor may be the only one in that city who can actually run the government at all to any level, because it's clearly apparent the Red Eyebrows have no idea what they are doing. But at the end of the day, General Zhang Ang and his allies were able to make the first move and convince the Red Eyebrow General that was housing the Gungshur Emperor to kill him. And they did. And the official who had previously offered to kill himself if the Gungshur Emperor was executed grabbed his body and hid it in a safe place to avoid desecration. The body would later be found, but we will get there when we get there, as Mr. Incredible 
once so beautifully said. The red eyebrows then began to piss off the people of regions that they picked up by the surrender of the Gungshur Emperor. It wasn't just the capital. By the year 26, they proceeded to add to their list of alienated subjects the people of Guangzhou, which is modern-day Shanxi. Same story as Chang'an. They pillaged their own lands for supplies because, are you crazy? Set up an economy? Trade? Miss me with that. Jokes aside, supplies do not grow on trees. That may be self-evident. And soon, the red eyebrows found that out. And they ran this region dry. They then really had to, by and large, go home to Shandong to re-equip en masse. They had to really go back to their homelands and get their stuff and eat and replenish everything. In the weeds, though, lays the snake. Liu Xiu was now Emperor Guangwu, G-U-A-N-G-W-U, and he had predicted this utter failure in governance and supply on the part of the Red Eyebrows. Knowing that they would probably have to come home to roost, he brought his supplied, loyal, and better trained army to block their way back home. Pretty much running out of supplies, already tired, I mean, they were tired before they took the capital, and up against all of that Liu Xiu just put in front of them, the Red Eyebrows leadership probably sighed and said, well, that was fun while it lasted, and promptly surrendered. In a showing of clemency, Emperor Guangwu, previously Liu Xiu, it's the same guy, spared them all and even their puppet king, or at least spared their generals. The Red Eyebrows and their puppet emperor were the largest enemy by a long shot in the way of Emperor Guangwu. There still may lay regional rebel groups, and there did, and pretenders claiming to be emperor, but effectively, by plotting and planning and letting things just fall into place in front of him, Emperor Guangwu secured himself as the most powerful emperor since Wang Mang without actually fighting much at all. It was a true masterclass in strategy and political and military planning. It's incredible, really, and I want to say more on this, but I think it's pretty self-evident. He hedged his bets, got stronger, took what he could, was patient, let one of his enemies take out another one, waited till they got weak, and then simply just said, yeah, I'm too powerful for the last remaining enemy, and they turned over for him. So he's not damaged, he's not burning goodwill, but he's not out of the woods yet, because the whole point of this is unification. And he might have taken out his biggest enemy, but there was still a lot of unifying to do. So, here is a list of some of the people he had to unify that we didn't mention last episode because it would have been confusing. There was a guy called Liu Yong, and he himself claimed to be the rightful emperor of the Han Dynasty because he has some family lineage, which, honestly, he kind of had a subtle point. Then there was a guy named Peng Chong who actually revolted right around now against the new emperor after missteps by Emperor Guangwu. Mistakes he will write down that he would not repeat, and he wouldn't. 
but Peng Chong still revolted and occupied modern-day Beijing and the area around that. There was also Dou Rong, who, while allied to the emperor tacitly, did kind of see himself as the sole ruler of regions west of the Yellow River. There was Zhang Bu, who had previously been just independently ruling the Shandong region during all of this, just kind of doing his own thing. There was Wei Xiao, who, like Dou Rong, was allied with the new emperor tacitly, but was also the independent ruler, this time of the area east of the Yellow River. There were many more, but I will mention the last, one I've already mentioned, Gong Sun Shu, the warlord who had beaten the armies of the Gongshu Emperor, and he proclaimed himself emperor of Chengjia, not of the Han Dynasty, and he controlled what is modern-day Sichuan and Yunnan, the last one mentioned was the strangest to look at. He beat the Gungshur Emperor in open battle. Yeah, the Gungshur Emperor wasn't great, but that's still a pretty impressive victory. Gongsun Shu had wealth, power, men, and land, but he was dwarfed by the size of Emperor Guangwu's wealth, power, men, and land. So he actually did something you don't really expect from regional warlords in the ancient world. He was incredibly pragmatic. Because Emperor Guangwu, and for the last time, previously Liu Xiu, same person, was embarking on a reunification campaign. So Gongsun Shu said, I will let him do that. Not here, but in the meantime, I will stay within my borders and make sure that my little empire is operating well. To jog our memories, by the way, the last major reunification campaign realistically carried out any bit successfully was done by Qin Shi Huangdi. And if you can remember, that was bloody, that was violent, and was really an annihilation of enemies campaign. To end the Warring States era, that may have been actually needed. But this wasn't the Warring States period anymore. Clearly, an Emperor Guangwu wanted to try and quickly get the old glory days that the Western Han had just had going again. He wants to put things back on track, maybe a little different, maybe under a different regime, but he can take all the old systems that are not exactly dead and buried and resurrect them. Simply put, he did not and could not go on annihilation campaigns. I mean, he could have, but his end goal was pretty clear and that does not line up with annihilating everybody. Like Julius Caesar in part in the same civil wars we've mentioned already, Emperor Guangwu wanted peaceful resolutions explored first. Thus, first step was humble persuasion, not invasion. He was actually really nice about it. He didn't say, I have a big army and I will kill you if not. While that was clearly in subtext to a degree, he would humbly write and try to get people to join his grand vision. And in year 29, Wei Xiao, the leader of the lands east of the Yellow River, and Dou Rong, the leader of the lands west of the Yellow River, were indeed persuaded to a good degree in 29 to more or less reunify. Their cases are interesting. They were the first to do it. They still got to kind of lead their lands independently until this whole thing got kind of sorted out. And 29, the year, 
proved to be fruitful beyond just that. As Liu Yong's heir, with Liu Yong being the one who had claimed lineage legitimacy, well, his heir had fought in the Eastern Han armies and was beaten and killed. So there goes Liu Yong and his bid. Later that year, Peng Chong, the disgruntled past ally of Emperor Guangwu, was killed by his own slaves. They didn't think this was going anywhere. They knew that eventually they would lose, so they took matters into their own hands. And still, during year 29, Zhang Bu, the one who had just been sort of ruling Shandong this whole time, saw the writing on the wall himself and said, Oh my, that's four unified in a year? Yeah, I will now unify myself to the Eastern Han. He himself was made a Marquess for his automatic surrender. So when year 30 came around, all of Eastern China was pretty much under Eastern Han and Emperor Guangwu's control. This is where, yes, things get inexplicably weird. Wei Xiao, seeing reunification going great, made the absolutely astounding decision to openly consider re-independence and breaking away of his lands east of the Yellow River. As the quote from Spongebob went, you what? Wei Xiao had joined early. He had allied himself and was under the impression that he would then turn his lands over when reunification was completed. He now all of a sudden didn't want that. Wei Xiao first tried to get Dou Rong and the lands to the west of the Yellow River to flip themselves. Duo, not, I mean, not being out of his actual mind, said no. And all of this was happening right as Emperor Guangwu was considering having to make the difficult choice of invading and conquering the rich and protected lands of Gongsun's in, well, his empire of Changjia. That was the last Thanos stone. And now Wei Xiao is getting cold feet and wants to be independent in the face of all of this? It's crazy. But Emperor Guangwu tried desperately to convince Wei Xiao to stay with him, and at the same time wrote to Gongsun Shu as well. He was humble, he was nice, he was like, guys, this is the vision, let's stay with it. But both refused. And in Wei Xiao's case, it was not without protest from within. Literally, it seemed like everyone in his camp to some degree was essentially saying, what is you doing? I mean, they obviously didn't say that. So while he tried to avoid it, Emperor Guangwu was forced to wage war against both Wei Xiao and his lands to the east of the Yellow River and Gong Sun Shu and his little fake empire of the Changjia. It went as well as you think it would for Wei Xiao, though. Realizing he was probably hosed, Wei Xiao then doubled down on the stupidity and submitted to Gong Sun, and accepted a princely title from Gong Sun Shu. I mean, congratulations, you got a prince title in the last remaining holdout against the inevitable. So Duo Rong, the guy that didn't flip, in coordination with Emperor Guangwu, attacked Wei Xiao and, of course, easily pushed him out. They killed him in the year 33, 
and formerly took his capital pretty easily in 34. And I say easily, there was some resistance in the first couple weeks, and they did fine, but eventually, well, the inevitable happened. That left it as everyone versus Gong Sun Shu and his land of Chengjia. Gong Sun had proved pragmatic, we knew this, and he actually continued to do that. Because realizing that a straight-up battle right now against the united Eastern Han Dynasty would not prove to be beneficial or a likely victory in his favor, he instead turned to just trying to assassinate the Eastern Han generals. And boy, did he assassinate. He killed two that led one prong of the two-pronged invasion and ended up bringing the whole invasion to a temporary halt. Look, this was not a long-term winning strategy by Gongsun. It was really just a delaying tactic, doing what he could. And by the year 36, the Eastern Han had once again started the engines up, were there, and surrounded his capital of Chengdu. Yes, that, that Chengdu. But again, Gongsun holed away and frustrated the forces of the Eastern Han and Emperor Guangwu. And frustrate he did. But this led a general for Guangwu to complete the last masterstroke for the new Eastern Han Dynasty's creation. This general for the Eastern Han knew both sides were struggling. Being sieged sucks, but sieging also sucks. But this general for Emperor Guangwu pulled the fast one. He knew everyone wanted this to end, and he knew that anyone would take any opportunity to throw the fatal punch, and so he made his forces appear as if they were collapsing from total fatigue and exhaustion. He wanted his forces to look done. This baited Gong Sun Shu to go out for the fatal strike against the Eastern Han's armies, only to go and find out too late that it was a trap. He had been drawn out from his walls in desperation and hope to finally end this thing. But Gong Sun Shun himself was killed in the battle, and by the year 36, Chengdu as a whole gave up. The general responsible for this victory then proceeded to kill 10,000 people as punishment, and retribution I guess, the Eastern Han might have used clemency so far, but it's still the ancient world. And holding out for that long and costing that much time, money, and men will in turn cost even more people their lives. One of the other independent regions slash rulers flared up again at some point, but after beating it down and forcing that leader to flee to the Xiongnu, by 42 BC, China was essentially fully reunified. It has been an unbelievably hectic run to get to this point, but the Eastern Han Dynasty is officially begun. And so far, it is clearly led by an utter genius, maybe my favorite emperor in a very, very long time. So, we got through that confusing time, and next episode, we will dive into the beginnings in the events of Emperor Guangwu and the new Eastern Han Dynasty. 
there's still some mopping up to do. Things have to get cleaned up politically and economically, but alas, the Han Dynasty continues on. So remember to go to the website, and actually, before I say that, please go to your podcast provider and rate this show five stars. Really, it does not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me and also to Spotify's algorithm. Regardless, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the history of China. Thank you.